you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, we'll read the whole chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, your smartphone's not connected to the internet uh, or anything like that, feel free to grab the bulletin. There's a copy of the sermon text in there as well as an outline. The outline's on the flip side of the prayer requests as well, so you can keep it with you during the week. Without further ado, God's Word delivered by the prophet Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 11. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble Assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. And they, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing this morning as we consider his word together. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good and what you do is good. We pray that on a cloudy day, a gloomy day, you would shine into our hearts with the light of your glory, the light of your gospel, good news of your son, our savior, who came to earth to rescue a people for himself and pay the penalty for our sins. This morning we pray, let us see our sin, but also let us see our Savior. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone loves a good homecoming. We had lived in Colorado about a year, and we were returning from a vacation, and I think we were coming back from the airport, coming south, and eventually Pikes Peak came into view, and we sighed and said, it's good to be home. Does home become home the day you move in? Does it kick in after a month or a year? Well, it all depends. But at some point, it becomes home, comfortable, safe, beloved. And even your old homes, well, they're, they're still home too, just in a different way. It's why colleges and high schools have homecoming, parades, reunions, football games, and more. Even when it's not home anymore, it's, it's still home. And it's great to go back home. And in one way, the Bible is one big homecoming story. It's about paradise given in Genesis 1 and 2. Paradise lost, as John Milton so famously described Genesis 3. And paradise regained or restored, which covers Genesis 3.15 through Revelation 22. You see, Eden is our true home. Which is why Revelation 22, the end of the story, when we finally get back home, it's why there's a lush garden and a tree of life at the very end. And Isaiah 11 is a huge piece of that homecoming story. It tells you, if you will, about the king, the homecoming parade, who's going to make everything right, to whom everyone will flock. He is also the one who will make sure that everyone gets there who will knock down every obstacle, who will leave the 99 to find his lost sheep, who will preserve his remnant, protect them, and provide a path home, a path or a highway, a highway to heaven, the new Eden, the new heavens and earth, the home we were always meant to have. I think the words of Simon and Garfunkel work again this week as well. God is telling us He will be our bridge over troubled waters. He will lead us home. Home. What an elusive, confusing concept that must have been to the original audience. You see, they were either in exile or about to be. It's uncertain when exactly this was written, what, what date exactly. And so to that people, either in exile or about to be, God says, I will bring you home. I will lose none of my people. And I will do it, he says, through the branch, through the resurrected stump of a tree that you think is dead, through a hopeless, almost forgotten dynasty. Again, Isaiah 11, it's all about a homecoming, but it's also about the king of that homecoming. And one of his names is the branch. Three points about him this morning. The first one is this the righteous character of the branch. The righteous character of the branch. In the first five verses, the sobering reality of Isaiah 10 is that God will use Assyria to judge His unfaithful people. But the comfort we saw last week is that God's anger will soon turn from Israel to Assyria. Mighty Assyria, who thought of herself as a forest, even an axe that was chopping down the other forests. So Assyria is going to be chopped down. But as one forest is wiped out in chapter 10, another tree is sprouting in chapter 11. The mighty are brought low in Isaiah 10, and then our attention is turned to the lowly and the humble. Isaiah 11:1. 1, there shall come forth a shoot 
from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. God starts over with a stump, just like he said he would in Isaiah 6.13. From the stump of God's people, from the stump of King David's everlasting dynasty, comes a shoot, and it grows into a branch that bears fruit, and it is the stump of Jesse. Jesse, also known as David's father, King David's dynasty. Not dead, no sir. And so here the branch, which is first mentioned in Isaiah 4.2, the branch is called the shoot of Jesse, his offspring, his descendant, something that springs forth from him. But in verse 10, he will be called the root of Jesse. It's interesting, not simply because it rhymes, didn't rhyme in Hebrew, but the root or the origin of Jesse. Now think about that. Is this family tree circular? Or is this future king of David no mere man? Is he someone who existed before Jesse, before any of Jesse's ancestors, but who then in time became flesh when the fullness of time had come and came and dwelt among us? Is this someone larger than life? Because that's what this weary people needed in a future king. Was fearful Ahaz still the king when this was written? Maybe, but it doesn't really matter because his successors were no better. So how must these words in verse 2 have sounded to Israel who longed for a good leader? And the spirit of the Lord, it says, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord. What are his qualifications? Royal birth, you know, the right last name, yes. But you see, it's not just that. He has the goods as well. He has the Spirit of the Lord. And because he has the Holy Spirit without measure, as John 3.34 will say, he also has wisdom and understanding to govern his people. Counsel and might to defend his people with force if needed. And knowledge and the fear of the Lord to lead them spiritually. You see, Ahaz feared man, so he didn't trust God. The branch will not be like that. He will delight, it says, in the fear of the Lord. Knowing that the Lord may not always be safe, but he is always good to borrow from, I believe that's uh, C.S. Lewis, See, his paths may sometimes be bumpy. They may wind through valleys of sorrow, but they lead to rivers of joy. And the branch knows this. He knows not to trust mere appearances, but to look beyond them. That's what the heart of verse 3 is all about, distinguishing between mere appearance and reality. In other words, the best defense lawyers cannot trick this judge. He always judges with righteousness. The rich and the powerful would not take advantage of the poor and the meek in his court, no. And keep in mind, most of God's people at this time must have felt poor and weak. Not because of predatory lawyers and their clients and lawsuits necessarily, but because of predatory nations who did not worship God coming and ruling over them. And you see, if this... If this judge needed to make like Samson and become a warrior, then he was ready for that. He, he had a rod, it says, like God's king in Psalm 2, like the good shepherd in Psalm 23, and he was ready to use it, verse 4 says. 
if his people needed that. And they would. John Calvin says, Christ will never be without enemies who will endeavor to overturn his kingdom. Christ will never be without enemies. That is why Israel needed a leader like this. It's why we still need a hero and a champion like this. You see, at our best, we still all want someone like this to lead us in troubled times. Have we as a church, as a nation, as citizens of the earth, have we, have we had a hard and troubled year? I think so. And I'm very grateful for leaders around me who have led with me, who have led in my place when I needed it, who have supported me and encouraged me to keep going. I appreciate it all. I, I also appreciate the support of many of you. Many of you may not think of yourselves as leaders, but without knowing it, you have helped me and others to lead. Maybe it's just a small sentence or two of encouragement when I needed it. There was a point in the year when I began writing down some of those things. Many of you may not know how much those things meant. And why do I mention all of that? Well, because by contrast, Israel had some horrible leaders. Praise the Lord. I don't think that's the case for our church. And I would say in all that, to God be the glory, but his servants at least deserve an honorable mention, borrowed that phrase from someone else. And yet, does all that mean that our leaders are all like this? The, the, the branch 2.0, always full of wisdom, always full of the right answers, always ready to sacrifice, knowing the right thing, doing the right thing. Does that mean we're always like that and we need no help? Hmm, not quite. Sometimes we all are more like King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20, verse 12. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That was his prayer. That might sound like a weak and powerless prayer. You might say, well, a CEO could never get up and say that. But maybe they should. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so we all, just like Isaiah's friends 3,000 years ago, need to look to the branch, the one who is glorious, the one who is clothed in the Holy Spirit without measure. We need his righteousness. We need to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the righteous character of the branch teaches us. And next we see this, secondly, we see the reign of peace of the branch. The reign of peace of the branch in verses 6 through 9. When you hear of a king reigning, you might expect iron fist. And you know, verses 4 through 5, it says that the branch, great David's greater son, he will, he will be ready to throw down to pr protect his people if he needs to. But in this passage, what you also see is that his righteousness... His righteousness that makes all things right, it leads to peace. If others rebel against what is right, this king will subdue them and he will bring about peace. Victory brings peace, Ralph Davis says. For example, I was about five. There was some new kid in my class who bullied me for about a day about something. No, I don't have big scars from it. It was short-lived. One of the reasons it was short-lived is because my older brother saw what was going on. 
and promptly shoved that kid down. My brother won the fight, and the result for me, peace. Never had a problem with that kid again. Victory brings peace, but it's the peace, the peace that dominates these verses, this future view of what we long for. Look at verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read it all in one swoop here. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When this leader comes, this is what his people will enjoy. Mind-blowing peace, fullness of blessing, absence of conflict, both. The knowledge of this Savior, as it says in verse 9, it will lead to peace. Verses 6 through 8, Derek Kidner says, The reign of Christ already produces this kind of transformation in the sphere of human character and will ultimately change the whole creation. Think about that. The reign of Christ, it changes you from a predator who has to devour and dominate your opponents. It's the way you think of things if you're only looking out for yourself. Changes you from a predator into a person, a redeemed person. Who knows that he's a fellow image bearer of God who loves your fellow man, who wants to bless him or her and peacefully coexist with them. Now this will not happen all at once. And even if it happens for you, it may not happen for your neighbor. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now peace does not only depend on you, but so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, make sure you aren't the problem. But that's, that's not everything that, that Kidner said. He said the reign of Christ produces this peaceable character, yes. And he says it will ultimately change the whole creation. And then he points to Romans 8, which talks about the whole of creation longing for redemption. And here in Isaiah 11 you have a picture of that, of what redemption accomplished, applied, and consummated will look like. This is a picture of paradise regained, paradise restored, the whole creation put back into joint, as Webb says. Eden, once again, in poetic form. Now you might be wondering, will there be animals in heaven? Maybe that's more of interest to some of you than others. Will there be animals in heaven? I have a 13-year-old puppy. I really hope so. And I'm not sure that the Bible says a definite no. But what we seem to see with more certainty is that if they're in heaven, they will be better animals. Friendly, not feared. This, what you see, I think, in verses 6 through 8, the lion lying down with the lamb, all of these things, it's unfathomable peace. It's meant to show you something of what heaven is like. Or you might say how unlike things are now. Think about how life is now. 
Wolves don't cuddle with lambs. Cows don't hang out with lions. Most parents do not let their kids play with cobras and adders and other snakes. Doesn't happen. But in Isaiah's vision of heaven, the danger, the harm are not here. Now, on the one hand, you're saying, oh yeah, but this won't be reality until heaven. But as Ralph Davis points out, don't we have, in many ways, a preview of heaven here on earth? For example, would anyone have ever imagined that Jews and Gentiles in the first century could coexist, bridge their racial and ethnic differences, and bring them together in a unified love of King Jesus? You think, Davis says, no one can bring these together, but Christ does. He does it now in part. He will one day do it in full. He does it now in part, imperfectly, not because he's imperfect, but because we still are. We are genuinely new if we are in Christ, but we are not fully new on this side of heaven. Because God is still working patience in us as he perfects us by his grace, slowly and surely. But again, one day God will bring us together in full with every tribe, tongue, and nation who trust in him. Kidner also says it's a picture of the new heavens and new earth in which, quote, variety will not be enmity, and the weak will be the complement, no longer the prey of the strong. You know, there are deep divisions in our society for various reasons. Sometimes it's because of our faith in the branch, the one who will ultimately bring about peace because some others do not share that faith. Sometimes that's why the division is there. Sometimes it's for other reasons. And we should hope that a common faith in our one Lord would help to heal any division. We should hope for that. But if that healing does not come as quickly as we want, then we need not despair. We should not despise the day of small things, of little victories, of small peace treaties, of babies' steps towards the estranged. All of those things are God's gifts of peace to us. And one day the branch will no longer give us small victories. He will give us big victories. He will give us more peace than we know how to handle. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Many of you know that. It doesn't just mean absence of war and conflict. It also means fullness of blessing. As the Christmas carol says, he comes to make his blessings flow. You could finish it far as the curse is found. That's why Isaiah's friends must have seen all this and said, Oh, our Lord, come quickly. It's why we should say the same. That's what happens when you catch a glimpse of the peaceful reign of the branch. And lastly, this morning, we see the regathering of the branch's people. The regathering of the branch's people in verses 10 through 16. Someone calls it the great homecoming. If I stole that from, from him, the whole homecoming theme, so be it. The great homecoming. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. The nations, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they're in focus here. 
Isaiah is reminding all of, all of his audience that Abraham, the father of the Jews, was meant to be a blessing to all nations. And we, who are Father Abraham's children, if we have trusted in Abraham's triune God, we are meant to make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. But the bottom line is, as far back as 700 B.C., we have a clear picture that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be part of God's forever kingdom. Then the rest of these verses seem to have God's Old Testament people in view, His, His remnant. As someone says, starting in verse 11, you see the scattered gathered, the divisions healed, and the obstacles removed, each in two verse chunks. Look with me at verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. <clears throat> a second time. What does He mean? Most people think it's referring to the second exodus, a second exit from a place of captivity. Again, Isaiah's audience was either en route to captivity or they, they soon would be. And they would return years later, of course, to the promised land. They would rebuild the wall around the city, rebuild the temple. Of course, even then, Haggai the prophet would admit that the second temple was as nothing compared to the first one. Why mention all that? Because God's people, Jew and Gentile, all of His people, all of His people are still waiting for the second exodus, the greater exodus, the greater homecoming. It was accomplished in part in the Old Testament when Cyrus sent everyone home. Not everyone, but some of them. Accomplished in part at Jesus' first coming when He set us free from all our sin and sorrow, from the penalty of sin, it will be accomplished in full when He comes again and frees us from the presence of sin, fully and finally, once and for all. What will that day be like? How would Isaiah have tried to communicate a homecoming to a people who had never seen a football game or a modern parade? Well, I think verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It'll be like all the exiles of Judah, Judah, God's somewhat faithful kingdom. It'll be like all of the exiles coming back. You know, many commentators caution us here saying we shouldn't see the exiles returning as if they are all one nationality or ethnicity. This sweeping picture is meant to show us the people of God, Jew and Gentile, who trust in the new and greater King David. The point is that none of God's people will be left behind. No pun intended there. All the dispersion, the scattered people, they're all gathered from the four corners of the earth when the branch, also known as King Jesus, comes back. When that happens, verses 13 and 14 say these divisions between Ephraim and Judah, which we saw as far back as chapter 9, says those divisions will be healed. God's people will not be infighting in the final day. And not only that, but the branch will remove all the obstacles that might keep them from coming home. Verse 15 says, 
And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. Once upon a time, God parted the Red Sea so that his people could escape from Egypt. Another time, he parted the Jordan River so that they could enter the promised land. Whatever boundary remains that might prevent God's people from coming home. God will remove the boundary. He will bulldoze away to bring his people home. Elsewhere, Isaiah says this, chapter 40, familiar words. Chapter 40, verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Similar idea is going on in verse 16 here. It's a different people that are clearing the path, but in both of these passage, passages, the path is cleared. The path is cleared for God to be with his people. Verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Once again, the remnant shall return. The remnant, the faithful people who cling to God by his grace, by his strength, is all around their soul gives way. In the wreckage and destruction of life, they're the ones who keep their eyes on Jesus. The ones who keep their eyes on the branch. The one who alone reigns in true righteousness. Who alone reigns in peace, fullness of blessing. Who alone can bring all of God's people all the way home. I love vacation, but I love coming home. You know, when we describe heaven as the eternal blessing of dwelling with God for all time, when we describe that as coming home, it may not sit well with you. You, you may think, hold on a second, I don't, I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to go to another home. I like it where I am. I, I like my favorite chair. I like my favorite home-cooked meal and, and other things like that. To that I would say... The problem is not that you appreciate your home. The problem is that you don't fully understand your true home. You see, our true home, once again, is Eden. The paradise that our ancestor Adam had before sin ever entered our home. It's as if we inherited Adam's good memory of Eden. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time also, He has put eternity into man's heart. You see, our current home is a pale imitation of Eden. It's not to knock your home. It's to help you realize this. As much as you love your home, heaven is better. And on some level that you may not be able to describe, you want it more than you want anything else. You want to return to Eden, to paradise. You want to come home because the leader, the king that is waiting there, that will reign there, he is 
better. He is more righteous, more loving, more protective than anyone we've ever known. His peace is somehow more peaceful. And when we get to the place that he has prepared for us, it will be like going home, only better. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we remember Bruce's words from earlier. We feel inadequate to convey the mystery and the eloquence and the beauty and the glory of what we read this morning. So, Father, we pray that you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, might sanctify our imaginations. You might sanctify our hearts. You might sanctify us. You might make us more like your Son, our Savior. And you might make us long for him, for the day when we will see him face to face. Father, be with us. Bless us for Jesus' sake. We ask it all in his name. Amen.